Pastor John told me roughly a thousand times that I'd learn a lot from working on this sermon. I never really doubted that I would learn something, but it seemed like the passage I'd chosen didn't have as much relevance to my life as I'd hoped. Please don't think this means that I think only bits and pieces of the Bible are applicable to me. I was only just struggling to find the connection. Imagine that, a high schooler was struggling to understand how something an adult said could ever possibly pertain to her own incredibly dramatic and special life. (laughs) This past weekend, I was trying to work on some sort of outline for the sermon as my senior class made the eight-hour trek to Washington, D.C. on a tour bus. But in the end, I only worried myself into a giant, tangled mess of stress and inferiority complexes until I had to give up and join in the game of, how much longer till we get there, Mr. Nichols, (laughs) to distract myself. We arrived in the city, and not so surprisingly, I immediately forgot about everything, except for traipsing across Washington, D.C. and painting it the color of Samantha in summer. Later in the evening, though, as my classmates settled down and we boarded the bus to head back to our hotel, a few of my friends struck up a small conversation about a fairly controversial theological topic. Even though I was really tired and would have been happy to just watch the city lights pass by outside of the window, I listened intently and eventually piped in myself. The conversation went on and on and back and forth and up and down. We talked and talked about our dim understandings and opinions of all sorts of theology as topics continued to spark more topics. Though there was never any animosity present in the conversation, every time one of my suggestions was questioned, I grew more frustrated, more angry, and more unhappy with my friends. I felt tense and scared and tired of needing to be defensive. I got so angry with them. I never said anything to tell them of my anger, but I think we all knew how each of us was feeling. I felt and in fact wanted to be separated from them, because it was all just so trying, and I knew it wouldn't be much longer before I started getting mean. It's a sad sort of funny that, as we were discussing theology, an act which should strengthen our relationship with our Father, we were pushing each other away in an atmosphere of tension and resentment, and by doing so, destroying the very relationship we were trying to strengthen in the first place. All along through my sermon contemplation time, I had been thinking, this passage isn't very applicable. I feel like my problems all have to do with humility, or I suppose the lack thereof. Not what this passage is talking about. I am truly so embarrassed by how long it took me to realize this passage has everything to do with humility. It has everything to do with humility, and it has everything to do with me, Samantha Nichols, member of the human race. Romans 3, 9 through 20 says this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That almost hurts to hear, doesn't it? It feels sort of like sprinting along and then slipping in the dewy grass and having the wind knocked right out of our mortal lungs. I believe that was one of Paul's intended responses to his writing. When he wrote his letter to the Romans, he had several goals in mind. He began the letter by commending the Christians of Rome after having heard of their strong faith all throughout his travels. But very quickly, he goes on to explain his understanding of the gospel in order to set a few things straight in their minds. Before Paul came along, many false apostles had already passed through, spreading deceitful and incorrect teachings of the law. Because of this, Paul writes his letter to remind the people of the true faith of the gospel. The other driving force behind his writings is to address the issue of the Jew-Gentile debate. Jews tended to believe that because they followed Jewish law, that they would be closer to God than the newly Christian Gentiles. Paul sets out to explain in Romans 2, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. He's saying that matters of salvation and closeness to God have much more to do with the true states of our hearts than the correct obedience of ritual and law. Jews and Gentiles are equal in humanity, in sin, and as children of God. Though Paul wrote this letter directly to the Roman people, The letter was never supposed to reach only their ears. It was never meant to end there. It was not a letter we might write to our younger siblings while away at college, extending wisdom meant only for them. It was a message intended to transcend time, circumstance, and character. God was using Paul to speak to me, to you, to our neighbors, just as much as he was using him to speak to the Romans. So to my elders, I urge you, the next time you are sitting around the dinner table and the conversation sways in a theological direction, remember that you are pursuing good, not proving that you are right. To my contemporaries, I urge you the next time you're looking at the stars with your friends, questioning your existence, and spitting out an awkward adolescent blend of you, your parents, and your favorite artists' opinions, I urge you to remember that you are pursuing good, not proving that you are right. And to myself, I urge, the next time I sit in a Bible class, 
my face turning the color of my angry passion to remember that I am pursuing good, not proving that I'm right. For we must all remember that none of us is righteous, not even one. I think we're often guilty of assuming that there is one righteous person and that that person is clearly us. We imagine that God is always on our side of the argument, that if only he were here, he'd set things straight and let everyone know that our theology is correct, that we are the righteous one. But the thing is, we are all alike under the power of sin. Jews and Gentiles, old teachers and young students, males and females, Protestants and Catholics, we are all fallen. We are all those awful things Paul said, and more. When being right matters more than humbling ourselves before God, Scripture tells us that our tongues practice deceit, ruin and misery mark our ways, and the way of peace we do not know. Though it seems unfortunate that no amount of correct observance or understanding of the law will bring us out of our shame and unworthiness, We should feel wonderfully fortunate that we have a Father in Heaven to help us with that very mess. A Father who has undying love and overwhelming mercy for us, sinful though we are. In one of John Wesley's sermons, entitled On Living Without God, he addresses a similar thought with much more eloquence and clarity than I ever could hope to. So rather than borrow ideas from it, I will share it all. He says, I believe the merciful God regards the lives and tempers of men more than their ideas. I believe he respects the goodness of the heart rather than the clearness of the head, and that if the heart of a man be filled by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, with the humble, gentle, patient love of God and man, God will not cast him into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels because his ideas are not clear, or because his conceptions are confused. Without holiness, I own, no man shall see the Lord, but I dare not add or clear ideas. On the bus that day, I believe that had we all been more thoughtful of this truth, my friends and I might have benefited much more from our discussion Had we instead viewed it as a team working together to solve a puzzle or had used our different backgrounds, perceptions, and ideas to make the discussion more of a chorus of melodies and harmonies that create fascinating music, we may have been able to see more of the love and beauty and less of the hurt and frustration. We may have been able to use theology for its intended, valuable purpose of seeing the Lord our God more clearly through fellowship with each other. We as Christians must remember to focus every one of these discussions, and indeed every conversation, on the pursuit of God, for he is the ultimate truth and the supreme love. And we must also remember that our need for the correct theology will not ever even come close to surpassing our need for mercy and love. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that just as you have used me to give this message to the people of this church, that you use us all to pass the message on through our words and actions. 
I thank you for the opportunities that we have to discuss our varied understandings of your love. And I pray that we use those opportunities to further your work in our lives and to glorify you. Thank you for your overwhelming grace and undying love for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we pray. Amen.